Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. Today and for the next two Sundays, uh, my goal is for us to approach and to look at, uh, to walk around the base of, if you will, uh, to take in a small bit of the grandeur of one of the summits of Scripture, Psalm 119. Uh, I'm told that in the world of mountain climbing, which is a world that I never aspire to enter, uh, that climbing all seven summits, the highest peaks on each of the globe's continents, is a huge achievement. And uh, the, the danger of that makes it daunting. It's quite an accolade. And um, People try, and, and of course, they don't succeed. If you uh, read John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air, which was out, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so, it's a pretty, pretty fascinating and, and sad story of a disaster on Mount Everest. Uh, in 1924, the New York Times asked British climber uh, George Mallory why he wanted to climb Mount Everest, and the answer you might know, it's become apocryphal to us, is because it's there, right? is what he said. And he actually failed in his attempt. And it took 75 years for his body to uh, be recovered. Well, I don't really know why I mentioned that other than uh, Psalm 119. <laughs> Psalm 119 is one of the summits of Scripture. It's epically long. It's 176 verses long. Uh, we didn't ask Katie to read all of it this morning. Maybe next week. Uh, by comparison, the book of Galatians is 149 verses. So on its own, uh, it could be its own book of Scripture. It's also stunningly artistic. If you have uh, English Bible open, uh, you might notice that at the top of each section, there is a Hebrew word. For instance, in my Bible, ahead of verse 1, it says Aleph. Uh, that is the, the A letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And you'll see that uh, for the next 21 stanzas. That's because the poem is an acrostic poem. Uh, the English teachers here will tell us, but I looked up, that an acrostic poem is a poem uh, where, you know, the, the different uh, words uh, of the alphabet kind of start each section. And more amazingly, in Psalm 119, each of the verses in the section, so verses 1 through 8, for instance, all start with the same letter. Uh, they all in Hebrew, uh, they all start with Aleph. So uh, it's actually quite an artistic accomplishment uh, that the writer went through over 176 verses uh, to draw our attention both by length and by artistry to this amazing subject matter. And if you think about it, um, how, how awesome is the Lord that he inspires someone to use such amazing artistry. Now, it might not be artistic to us, but, uh, you know, in its day, such amazing artistry to convey such an important topic, which is my summary uh, about how the God of grace uses his word of grace to promote transformation or maturity or holiness 
or sanctification, if you prefer the big word, in the lives of the people that he saves. And the result of God's work by his word is that his people are blessed. Now, there's that word again, blessed, that tricky Bible word. I uh, have a couple of Hebrew dictionaries on my computer, and they describe the, and define the word blessed as truly happy, but not happy in a self-centered or superficial kind of way. It's true happiness understood as knowing, trusting, worshiping, fearing the true God. Knowing the true God's forgiveness, living in the true God's world, the world that he made according to his instructions. And so uh, to be blessed is to enjoy and to experience, and Psalm 119 is very experiential, uh, to experience God-centered, God-informed, true happiness, apart from which all other pursuits of happiness fall short. If you, uh, if you think about the, the moment that we live in generally, would you describe it as a happy moment? I, I, I don't, maybe, I mean, I hope your life is happy, but um, I think as we look around, as we read the news, however we take the news, as we engage with folks, we find ourselves in a paradox. We, uh, particularly suburban Americans, we have so much. Uh, we have so much materially. We have so much uh, freedom. We have so much prosperity, so much entertainment, so much to fill our time with. But has having so much produced genuinely happy people? Think about it. Think about the conversations you have when you get together with your friends. What would you say is being produced? Like if we were doing a Sunday school class roundtable, what would you say is being produced? Well, you might build a list of uh, descriptions that include things like loneliness, anxiety, fear, boredom, uh, discouragement. Now, these are all kind of multifactorial. There's lots of causes. We live in a broken world as sin-impacted people. And so I'm not going to propose a simplistic answer to all of these things. I'm not going to try to explain away uh, your discouragements or my discouragements, but I would like to take the psalmist up on his offer, which is this. Well, what if there was a way to go? What if there was a direction of life to head in, which offered happiness not only at the end, but along the way? Would you take that journey? Actually, you are taking that journey. Every human takes that journey. We all take the journey that we believe will lead us to maximal happiness, maximal satisfaction, however we define it, however we describe it. What I would like to suggest, because we are wired to pursue happiness, is that Psalm 119 gives us a pinnacle answer to the question, how do you actually come in to blessedness? How do you actually have that kind of life, not only at the end, but along the way? And so for the next three weeks, we're only going to gaze at the summit. We're going to start the hike. We might for a moment feel the weight of the rucksack when it, shut, when it settles on our shoulders because we'll have to do some thinking. But, you know, we'll barely make it to base camp. And yet the trek will be worth it 
because God will point us in a direction. He will teach us about how transformation happens, and we'll understand better how the God of grace, through His Word of grace, brings blessing into our life. So this week, uh, the topic is, is grace, word, and spiritual integrity. Next week, grace, word, and spiritual transformation. And if we make it as far as three weeks, grace, word, and spiritual courage. So spiritual integrity this morning. Grace, word, and spiritual integrity defined. So like one of the seven summits, I'm going to stay on this mountaineering theme this morning for you a little bit uh, because last week was baked goods and people, you know, they wanted a lower carb sermon. And so this is about mountaineering. Uh, and the sermon's not about mountaineering. Uh, it's just the uh, conceit. Uh, like one of the seven summits, I know, <laughs> it wasn't a very good joke. <laughs> Psalm 119 is attracted uh, the efforts of the church's best and brightest across history. Thomas Manton uh, was a Puritan who preached 150 sermons on Psalm 119. Think about it. You're just getting three. I um, mean, so if, you know, by week three, you're like, that's enough. Let's move on. Uh, his church had 150 sermons consecutively on Psalm 119. One pastor uh, identified from church history, Augustine, uh, the, the church father, he was reluctant to even take up Psalm 119. This is what Augustine said. I always put off the exposition of Psalm 119, not so much because of its formidable length as because of its profundity, which few can fathom. My brethren took it badly that this psalm alone should lack an exposition in our insignificant writings, but for a long time I did not yield to their requests or even to their commands, because every time I tried to think about it, it always seemed far beyond the powers of my mind, end quote. So if Augustine looked at Psalm 119 and said, yeah, I'm not climbing that. Well, I'm not here to fool anybody. It's kind of like, you know, taking a Polaroid of a Rembrandt here. Um, you can think about that. Um, what does that mean? Uh, but I do want to give us a basic paradigm for hearing and applying the psalm because it's possible to hear verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. It's possible to hear that verse wrongly, to get off on the wrong foot, and to start off in a tangent which takes you far away from where you want to go. It's like, you know, misreading a map and a compass. You know, if, if you get it wrong, the first step you're not too far lost, but over a mile you are way lost. So we don't want to do that. The wrong way to read and apply the psalm goes like this. Don't do this. God has a law. It can be kept blamelessly. If you keep the law blamelessly, you'll be blessed or truly happy in our God-centered way. Actually, unhappiness lies down that tangent. Because God's law or his instruction emerges within the greater story of God's covenant promise. And God's covenant promise essentially is that he would be the God of a particular people, specifically saved and graciously forgiven. And that God and people enter into this 100% committed relationship, which is entirely gracious. That, that no person from 
the initial sin of Adam and Eve onward deserves to be in this kind of relationship to God. Sin wrecked that. But the good news is that God in grace rescues sinners. Specifically, God's instructions, so now think Ten Commandments, and then all of the related instructions that are given in the first five books of the Old Testament, are spoken by God on the occasion of His deliverance of Israel from slavery. So uh, they had been enslaved. God stupendously freed them. And in the process of taking his people from slavery to freedom to their new home, he gives them his word. So God has worked amazingly, powerfully to save a people who are personally sinful and also sinfully oppressed. And in the process of saving, he gives them his word. And that's the way all of us are. That is all of our story. We are all sinful and we are all impacted by other sins. So at Mount Sinai, as God speaks his word, the Ten Commandments, starting in Exodus 20 and verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He begins his word by reminding his people of grace. He's like, I have just undertaken this amazing deliverance of you, and now I am speaking these commands to you. I am speaking these commands to people who are already free. So, uh, you know, it, it certainly would not be unique in the, in, uh, to call the law the law of freedom. That this is how you live in God's world, God's way. And so the first thing that we need to get right is that Psalm 119 brings us a word about what God speaks, and we'll hear different terms for it over the next three weeks, law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, judgments, and all of these words spring from grace. Have we got that? All of the words spring from grace. And the second thing that's helpful to remember, and this won't be new information to many, is that God builds the mechanics of forgiveness into the law. So, so the same word that includes the commands also includes the uh, instruction on the sacrificial system. So that within this entire structure of, you know, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, you have the commands and then also also this declaration of how to be forgiven. Because God knows that the people that he saved are still going to sin. And so the mechanics of atonement, to use the particular words, are built into uh, the Torah, the sacrificial system. And that, of course, points us down the road to Jesus. And we'll come to that in turn. So we don't want to make the mistake of reading Psalm 119. It goes like this, God saved me by grace... But now to be a truly happy person whose way is blameless, I, have to keep, I will keep the law perfectly. You know, grace then just becomes a push start in the right direction. Now it is all up to me. There's a, a small child in my neighborhood. If you're visiting this morning, we're glad you're here. A parent who is teaching this child to uh, ride a bike. 
you, you know how this goes. You've got the, the kid on the bike and the training wheels are off and the kid is wearing one of those marvelous biking helmets with the dinosaur horns kind of down the middle and the, the kid is pedaling furiously and the parent is holding onto the seat and then gives a push start, push start and just uh, calamity. This <laughs> is how it goes for a little while. And we can think that that's what law-keeping is about. It's a, a push-start. But if we're honest with our hearts, it's push-start and then calamity. So what about blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord? What if I told you that this was not about perfection but was about integrity? Being the same person on the inside and outside by believing God's word, obeying it, and repenting when we fail. Blameless is about character integrity. A, a professor of mine reminded me in a writing that Psalm 15, different psalm, describes blamelessness, same concept, this way, Psalm 15. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, so that's who we are on the inside, who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. That's the way that we behave on the outside. So he's describing blamelessness as being who you are from the inside out. That the truly happy, blessed person is the person whose way is blameless, whose way is a way of integrity of being the same person on the inside and the outside as we hear God's word and we, as we pursue it. So that's just the definition. That's just half of verse one. No wonder man preached 150 sermons on this. I might ask for a few more weeks. Uh, but the second point is, is uh, that he describes how to pursue spiritual integrity. Now the entire Psalm 119 describes the pursuit of spiritual integrity. Uh, one commentator describes Psalm 110 really as it's about discipleship, really. That, that you read it from the vantage point of someone who's already been saved, who's come into the covenant community, and then is describing the role of God's word in living the life of faith, of, of keeping God's word from the inside out, which is not anything different than what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? When Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount describes the law, he says we're going to keep it from the inside out. Verses 2 and 3 continue to describe how we pursue spiritual integrity. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. So the writer used lots, lots of different words to describe God's law, testimonies, precepts, statutes. Uh, the words do have different nuances, but sometimes they're synonyms. So we don't have to stress too much, I don't think, about the different nuances of the word to catch the big meaning. The truly blessed person pursues spiritual integrity from the inside out. And verses 2 and 3 illustrate this. God has a word to hear and obey and a way to go. His way to go is described in the ways of his law. And these verses introduce us to this transformational dynamic of grace. God speaks, we hear, we obey, we fail, we repent, we hear, we obey. 
That's the transformational dynamic with the Spirit empowering all of it. God saves by grace. He speaks his word. He promises a savior. He promises forgiveness so that we can always turn back. We seek and rejoice and delight knowing God and walking in his ways. And the more we walk in his ways, the more wholehearted we become. Which gets us to what the theologians call the third use of the law. You don't have to worry about the label. Just mention that for the the seminary guys here just to prove I took that class. (laughs) But the concept is this, that God's law... So think the Ten Commandments, describes his moral will, it's perfect. It reveals where we fall short and need a Savior. But then thirdly, it describes us how to live. It directs us in the goodness, the the way of being blessed, the way of being happy by keeping his word. So I I thought we could test this out just by picking one commandment and uh, and seeing how this moves from being kind of a, a bare explanation of what not to do to a more full-orb description of how to live a happy life. So I picked the Eighth Commandment, which is you shall not steal. But, but this works with all of the commandments. So how does this commandment promote spiritual integrity that leads to real happiness? Well, it seems basic. Don't steal. You could get caught. You could face big penalties. But if we take another step towards the summit, uh, we would think this way. If you steal you're actually exercising hatred towards your neighbor and you're breaking the command, do not, you know, you know, love your neighbor, don't hate your neighbor. So you're breaking that commandment and stealing. Take another step. You're not only hating your neighbor, you're also not loving yourself when you steal because you're working against your own character, what God calls you to do. Well, you can push it even further. Because uh, the older Christians, for instance, uh, the the folks who wrote the Presbyterian Confession and Catechism, uh, stated this negative commandment, you shall not steal. They stated it positively. They said, you shall not steal requires the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. In other words, God's law isn't just about the bad to avoid. It's about the good to do that God made us to live in a just world where beneath his providence, and his providence includes the time and the talent and the gifts and the abilities that you have, that he has given you gifts and abilities to use and time in which to use them in which you can pursue all kinds of legitimate endeavors as ways to build your wealth. In other words, all of a sudden, do not steal becomes a very positive statement about why to work. Why should you work? What? Labor Day weekend. Like, well, we're not working, Dave. Only you are working. (laughs) And not particularly well, by the way. (laughs) The wealth God enables us to build through our legitimate endeavors informs our contentment. So you work, you receive income. In God's providence, the income that you receive then informs what you have to live on, which then informs your contentment. So now stealing becomes less relevant. And generosity becomes more important because as an opposite of stealing, 
how we use our resources not only to build our own wealth, but the estate of others becomes important. So think about this, that, that as, you know, when you go to work on hopefully Tuesday, but maybe Monday, uh, or maybe this afternoon, I don't know, uh, that when you, when you go to work, the commandment do not steal is calling you to honest business dealings. But if you're in a management role, it also supports your efforts to be a good manager. That as you lead people, as you help other people succeed, as you help them begin and undertake their careers and come into the wealth that they will accumulate because of providentially God's work in their life, uh, that you're actually keeping this commandment, which adds value to the work that we do. This means that, you know, on the, the, the Monday afternoon where you're kind of, you know, it's Monday and you've got the Monday work blues and you're like, man, I don't know about work. This actually builds a lot of value into it. And so now your work is increasing in its value and it's increasing in its significance. And you're doing what you do, not just because you have to do it, but now because you understand more how God is using it. And you're moving in the direction of happiness. You're moving in the direction of being truly blessed. You're moving in the direction of spiritual integrity. No wonder the psalmist who, who surely contemplated this at levels that we haven't reached yet says, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. That, that's a prayer. The oh, that my language, oh, that my, that, that's prayer language. He's seeing the opportunity of this blessed life. And he's saying, oh, that God might help me do this. Oh, that he help, might help me see the goodness of his word in pursuing spiritual integrity. And thirdly, that he might help us uh, see the, the possibility of having spiritually, spiritual integrity regained. So if you haven't heard anything else yet this morning, I want you to hear the next thing. Living God's way in God's world produces honor, not shame. Now, from time immemorial, you could read back your Bible all the way to the story of Cain and Abel, where you have two different brothers, one who wanted to live in God's world, God's way, and one who didn't. That the one who didn't thought that the honorable behavior of his brother Abel was actually shameful. And this is the kind of messaging that we will receive over and over and over again in our lifetime. That if we try to pursue living God's way in God's world, it's actually, it's embarrassing, it's shameful, it's limiting. You know, why are you concerned about what God would say in his word about how to live? Why would you do that? Silly Christians and all of those things. And, you know, it, you think about going to work and you think about decisions that you make in the workplace. And you say, well, I'm trying to live with spiritual integrity. I'm trying to do, you know, work God's way. And they're like, well, why are you even worried about that? Well, you can know in your heart that what you're doing is honorable. The psalmist says, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Learning God's rules 
pursuing them in an unashamed way, results here in verse 7 in worship. That God's judgments, his actions as judge, his rulings, sometimes his rule over world historical events, uh, which he is always in charge of providentially, that's just sometimes that's what it means in Scripture, is that he is an upright and righteous judge. Following his rulings results in an upright heart because his rulings reveal his character. Think about this. The, the, the law does not just tell us what to do. The law tells us who God is. So think about our Eighth Commandment illustration uh, again. Do not steal. Well, stealing violates God's character. Surely it violates his character in his holiness, but also because God is the ultimate giver, that, that he is astonishingly generous. As creator, he gives. As sustainer, he provides. So the negative command, do not steal, teaches us a positive reality, that the world that we live in is governed by a giver. And spiritual integrity produces small g givers. Spiritual integrity resists small s stealers. Which kind of world would you rather live in? Which kind of people would you rather manage? But what about the being put to shame? What about verse 8? I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Well, this is a prayer, of course, and the, the root meaning of forsake is abandon. It's been a while since I lost a kid. But I remember back to the day, you know, like you're in the mall and you momentarily lose contact with your kid. Have you ever done this? You're like, no, Dave, we've never done this. Hypothetically, you could go to the mall sometime back when malls were places where people went. And uh, you could have your kid with you and you could be walking through the mall and you could walk by the, uh, what's the, the jewelry store that young girls like? What is it? Claire's. And you could be making a beeline past Claire, but the person whose hand you're holding makes a beeline into Claire. And all of a sudden, uh, you have lost your kid, hypothetically, and that you feel like, oh no, I have abandoned my kid. That's the concept here. Forsake, abandon. Don't abandon me. Don't leave me alone in this mall, in this world. We need God's attending presence to keep his statutes. But here's the thing. His continuous presence means that he knows our areas of failure too. So why would he not abandon us? How could we believe that he won't? We might even ask, is spiritual integrity even possible? This is a critical question. I mean, some of us are spiritually hungry people. We want to know if authentic faith is possible, but we also know kind of the public head, headlines of spiritual uh, leader failures. Well, no, I mean, is, is faith even possible? Some people resist coming to faith uh, because uh, they would rather not be of faith and then not be found fraudulent later. You know, better to be an authentic unbeliever than a fake believer. And this fear is not new. The psalmist seems to have felt it too. He wants to be the genuine article. How could he not be put to shame in God's presence? Is spiritual integrity even possible? Ultimately, only Jesus makes spiritual integrity possible. 
Christopher Ash is a, a scholar. He drove this point home for me in, when I was studying. He underlined the story of King Solomon. Do you remember King Solomon from your Bible lessons? Do you remember who King Solomon's dad was? King David? This is the way King Solomon prayed in a prayer which included a comment about his dad. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. David. What are some things that we know about David? Giant killer, harp player, psalm writer, man after God's own heart, adulterer, conspirer to murder and cover up. And yet, God says of David that David walked in his way. After David blew it big time, repeatedly. How is that possible? How does the spiritual math work? Ash on this point. This is the money quote. Believers, like Abraham and David, described as law keepers? What does it mean? It can only mean that they were believers, that they went where the law pointed, to repentance and faith in the Messiah to come. And therefore, they knew in anticipation the blessing of justification by faith, of having righteousness accounted to them, end quote. So that when David, after being confronted by the prophet for his affair, takes, takes quill in hand and writes Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. When David prays that, he can pray that with integrity, which is not based on his performance, but on the anticipated performance of the Savior who was to come. Which means as we come down now to the year 2023, and better than David, we know the Savior who has come. And we understand the totality of his achievement, that the Messiah would come and he would live a perfect life, that, that for all of the ways that David failed and for all of the ways that all of the other Davids have failed and for all the ways that all have failed, he did not fail. And, and he kept the way, the law, the precepts, the statutes, the commandments perfectly. And yet in his perfect keeping of them, subjected himself to execution for our disobedience of them so that the righteousness that he achieved could be applied to me in all of my areas of unrighteousness so that in what the theologians would call this imputation of righteousness, this justification, I, I am actually brought to a point of spiritual integrity. Not because I have kept the way perfectly, but because he kept the way perfectly. And that his right way following and his right law keeping count for me so that the math works. 
This is where the law points to. This is how we come and we read the law and we read about spiritual integrity and we say this is the way of happiness, true happiness. I can do it and not be put to shame. The New Testament writers pick up on this. Paul, but also Peter, and we'll let Peter have the last word. As you come to him, Peter writes to the church, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's what the Word calls us to, to a spiritual integrity that can be pursued and a spiritual integrity that can be regained. And indeed, is not the Christian life the regaining of spiritual integrity moment by moment, day by day, week by week, year by year, at the rate of one per lifetime, as God transforms us by His Word. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast, and for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.